Peter writes in his epistle, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, again, we thank you that we have a more sure word. Father, thank you for prophecy. Thank you for allowing us to know what's going to happen. Thank you, Lord, how that alone builds our faith. It confirms, it convicts us, it purifies us. And Father, as we look into your word today, as we look at Daniel, as we see what Daniel saw as far as the world kingdoms, may we be totally convinced and committed to you. I pray that it would truly change your life, that it's not just about a bunch of facts, information, but it would actually be transforming our lives. Father, again, help us to see how your word has been fulfilled and your word will be fulfilled. Thank you for the promises that you give us. We ask now that you give us minds that are sharp, minds that can understand. We know that it's only through your Holy Spirit that our minds are illumined, not only to the truth, but how it applies to us. And we ask that your Spirit would guide us in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, we're continuing on with our study of Daniel. And you're going to notice something today. There's going to be a big change in our study. Daniel 1 through 6 was primarily history, biography, a lot of personal stuff in Daniel 1 through 6. As you go from chapter 6 to to chapter 7, verse 1, you are now entering the main part of the the, uh, book that has to do with prophecy. It goes from literal, chapters 1 through 6, to symbolic, chapter 7 through 12. By the way, people get scared of prophecy, right? People don't like talking about prophecy, quite honestly. In fact, I can, I can show it this way. Most likely, most of you knew some of the stories in chapters 1 through 6, Right? I mean, you probably had been taught at one point, especially if you ever went to youth camp, that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Or you may have had a Sunday school lesson about the fiery furnace and the three that went through it. Or maybe you even did, you know, chapter 4, and you remember that there was some king in the Old Testament that ate grass like a beast. (laughs) I'm sure... The handwriting on the wall, we even use that phrase, or uh, Daniel in the lion's den. But once you come to chapter 7, and that's prophecy. Now again, I understand chapter 2 was prophecy as far as Daniel interpreting for King Nebuchadnezzar. But even that was was, uh, showing something. It It was proving who Daniel was, proving who Nebuchadnezzar was, or at least showing who he was. And then also saying, in big, bold, red letters, God is in control. But when you get into chapter 7, and from this point on, it's prophecy. It's, it's things that most of you probably have never even, I would say probably have never even read. 
In fact, I would encourage you, you might want to start reading chapter 7 through 12, you know, just kind of work your way through, just so you kind of acclimate yourself to the passage. Because again, very unfamiliar. Most people, most Sunday school lessons stop at chapter 6. <laughs> because who's going to be talking about the little horn? <laughs> and the beast, and the unrecognizable beast. You know, can you imagine your kids running out of Sunday school class? Ah! (laughs) By the way, before we even get into this, I think it's worth noting and even reviewing why study prophecy? You know, again, a lot of people look at it like, I remember one pastor telling me, you you know, don't get into all that. It's just not that important, that kind of thing. Let me give you six reasons, and I gave you these a while back. I think when I covered them last time, it was August. I won't, I'll just bullet through them, but uh, first one is this, understanding fulfilled prophecy. Again, understanding fulfilled prophecy inspires confidence in the scriptures. Now that makes sense. Isaiah 55 says this, God says in his word, my word will not return what? Void, but it will accomplish what I have purposed it to do. It's not going to return void. I send it out. It's going to be fulfilled. By the way, when you see in Scripture how God's word was fulfilled, doesn't that give you confidence? If it's been fulfilled in the past, it's going to be what? Fulfilled in the future. Same God. So you have confidence not only in the Scriptures, but you have confidence what? In the God of the Scriptures. As one man said, only an omniscient, which is all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful God could both know and bring to pass the things that he has predetermined. He has to be all-knowing and all-powerful, and he will bring it to pass. I love that. We serve the only true God. Do we believe that? Everyone else, in fact, one of the things I've been thinking about is every other religion out there it's not only a dead God, but it's a slave religion because it's by works. And yet we serve the living God and who we serve frees us. We are free in Christ. We are free because we did not have to pay the penalty for our sin. It was paid for on the cross because of the freedom. Because now as we have received Jesus, what he did on the cross, we are secure in him. We don't have to keep working. That's what we learned, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. What? According to his mercy. His mercy he saved us. We are free because of what Christ has done, because what he did on the cross was complete. He was able to say it is finished. So we have confidence in the scriptures because of prophecy fulfilled. Number two, and I think you have to fill some of these in, understanding prophecy produces composure in the person. It produces stability. It produces balance. If you want to see, it's composure. Man, in a world like ours, we need composure. Again, as I've been studying Daniel, my life has become more and more settled. I think I was getting a little unsettled. I needed to study. I needed to study personally. You know, everything is out of control. You turn on the news and you just get frustrated. And yet James says this, establish your hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your heart. And that word establish means this, to stable, to fix, to make firm. Make sure your heart is firm. Why? Because the coming of the Lord. What is that? That's prophecy. Prophecy yet to be fulfilled. 
See, when I believe and when I am uh, assured of the fact that God's plan has been accomplished and God's plan will be accomplished, that stabilizes my heart. It brings composure. Number three, understanding prophecy is a source of comfort and encouragement and hope in the face of sorrow. What believer hasn't stood in front of an open grave without thinking of the certainty of the resurrection of the body? And that's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians talking about the rapture. Last verse, therefore comfort one another with these words. <laughs> By the way, it's hard to comfort someone when you don't believe the person may have received Christ, right? How can you comfort? But here, you can comfort. Why? Because you know where the person is. That's why Titus calls the Lord's return and the Lord's second coming both. And when I say return, I'm talking rapture and second coming, the blessed hope. Man, it's a blessed hope. You know, I, I, I never got it when I was younger. You know, when I was a teenager, all I wanted to do is get married, you know, and have kids, and that was like heaven on earth. And, oh, it's blessed to be married. It's great to have kids. But, boy, as you see this world deteriorating, even so come Lord Jesus, right? Even so come Lord Jesus. We need comfort. Comfort is from prophecy, not only fulfilled, but what's going to be fulfilled. Number four, understanding prophecy. Are you doing things behind me here? <laughs> is this where I'm supposed to go like this? And <laughs> Help me out here, please. <laughs> Actually, black screen is best. <laughs> <laughs> understanding prophecy produces another C conviction of believers conviction of believers but also conversion of unbelievers if you were to turn to Acts 3 you don't have to turn there but man within a week after Pentecost Peter's preaching but this is what he says but those things which God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that Christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled prophecy fulfilled verse 19 repent therefore and be converted see fulfilled prophecy should create conviction in a believer's heart by the way that wasn't just to unbelievers there was believers around but there was also unbelievers what is he saying man look at what's happened by the way jesus is coming back there's some other truths that we need to understand there's a judgment day and the books will be opened and there is what we call the great white throne, judgment. And those who have not received Jesus Christ will be judged and will be damned forever, which is hell, the second death. You know, that's going to be fulfilled prophecy. Christ came first advent, coming back second, Lord's return, um, white throne judgment. See, there's so much that is connected. Why should, why should an unbeliever be convicted? Because judgment day is coming. Someone will pay for your sin. Either Jesus Christ already has on the cross or you will in eternity forever called hell. Someone will pay for your sin. Number five, understanding prophecy should bring cleansing. Cleansing to the believer. Not only cleansing, but consecration. So there's two C's there. As we study scripture, that should be a cleansing effect. In fact, 1 John says this. 1 John 3, this is worth writing down, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Okay, so this is a Christian. We are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
Isn't that great? It's not, it's not totally revealed what we shall be. There is so much more waiting ahead. You know what? The worst in your life, if you're a Christian, is right now. The best is yet to come. Well, isn't it true? How many of you struggled with sin this last week? How many struggled with the flesh? How many of you, you know, got anger, or frustrated, or bitter, or slander, or maybe said things or thought things? And isn't it hard sometimes to frustrate? Hey, the best is yet to come. So not what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed as Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, there's coming a day when we'll be glorified. But then he says this, and everyone who has this hope, what? The hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that that Jesus is coming. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You have the hope. Actually, that might be the rapture. I should say that. But he's coming. Christ is coming. When you see him, if it's in the rapture and death, whatever, when you see Jesus, you're complete. Glorification. So again, purity. Prophecy should bring forth purity in our life. Cleansing, consecration. That's why Titus says it this way, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Can you, can you repeat this with me? Teaching us that denying... Any of you, ungodliness and worldly loss we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope yeah i should never ask you to repeat because you all have different versions (laughs) anyways but the point is this the blessed hope brings about purity in my life right now so cleansing prophecy should be see some people say why study prophecy it doesn't do anything in your life are you kidding me your stability your conviction your cleansing your your hope your is all connected to the fact that he's coming back that all these things are true that everything we know up to this point is true been fulfilled by god will continue be fulfilled by god which finally brings in consistency throughout one's life James 5, therefore be patient, brethren. That word patient is macrothumia. It means run long with. Be patient, run long with. Be consistent, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He connects it. In fact, he says the same exact thing two verses later. You shall also be patient, same word. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or you could go to 1 Corinthians 15, consistent. Not only consistent in our trials, but consistent in our service. I think this is Donna's one of her favorite verses. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Is that one of your favorite verses, by the way? Donna or no? Okay. I don't even know why I say that. I don't ever, you know, but seems like years ago she told me one time, that's my favorite verse. You know, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's coming back. <laughs> the Lord is alive. The Lord is going to have his uh, bema seat, the judgment seat, where that's not the white throne. That's where Christians receive reward. Why do I work hard? Why do you work hard? Why do you want to keep your life pure? Why do you want to walk with God? Why do you want to see the Lord work in your life? And you don't give up on people. You don't give up on the church. You don't, because you know that judgment day is coming. Not like, oh, 
No, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins were paid for on the cross. This is how judgment day should be for us. It's like reward day. I was going to say Christmas day, but that's pathetic. No, I mean, it's reward day. Reward day is coming. Reward day. So, therefore, we're steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I've just veered for, what, 15 minutes? Because I wanted you to see, as we get into chapter 7 through 12, (coughs) excuse me, please don't look at this like, oh, man, I really want to know what the Antichrist is, who it is. By the way, if anybody ever stands up in church and shows you a picture and says, this probably is the Antichrist, throw them out. Oh, I think someone did. No, we don't know who the Antichrist is. And my purpose is not to try to identify that. In fact, even as we look at the nations today for the last 20-some minutes or 30 minutes, whatever, it's not about, oh, let me tell you all about Rome and all about Greece. The point is this. God's plan and God's purposes are being accomplished because of God's power. Now, if throughout human history that's happened and now God has given us more prophecy, what's the point? And this is what's going to happen. We can trust God. Let's look at the first part, the setting of the vision, verse 1. The setting of the vision. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. Now, this is Daniel having the dream. Remember, chapter 2, it was Nebuchadnezzar who had the dream. This is Daniel having the dream. And visions of of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. This was main facts being just a summary. Didn't tell you everything. He just Now, we come to an interesting thing. First of all, this chapter in many uh, theologians' mind is one of the greatest, if not the greatest chapter uh, of prophetic scripture of all the Bible. Okay, this is a huge chapter, which like I said, probably a lot of people have never even read. But it is one of the greatest prophetic chapters of the Bible. It sweeps the entire life of Daniel all the way to the return of Christ. That chapter. Now, again, it doesn't give all of the pieces. And again, chapter 9 is a huge chapter as well. But it just gives the entire broad sweep of, uh, of human history. It is the most comprehensive, the most pervasive, the most panoramic prophecy of the future in the entire Bible. So again, I hope that you have a, man, this is exciting. This is not just uh, some beast, because that's what we're going to look at, some beast. So prophetically, I'm going to give you a few words, prophetically, entire sweep. Now, chronologically, notice first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. So this chapter brings us back, like, in fact, I'm going to have you actually manually do this, uh, just for a second. Go back past chapter 6, the lion's den, past chapter 5, because there is where we see Belshazzar. That's the king who had the handwriting on the wall. But actually, this chapter, chapter 7, happened sometime before between chapter 4 and chapter 5. This chapter moves us back about 14 years. See, so what happened was Daniel gave us a a historical biographical in chapters 1 through 6, which was chronological. 
And, you know, we worked through when Daniel first got taken away into captivity, and then he had, you know, he's working for the king, and he had the vision, and then the, the three friends with the fiery furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar eating grass, and then, you know, the actual to the end of uh, the Babylonian Empire, which was chapter 5, Persians came in, handwriting on the wall, they're gone. Chapter 6 is actually now they moved into the Persian realm. The Persian kingdom was happening when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Now what Daniel does is this. He goes back and says, let me tell you what I've been learning from God, prophetically, dreams. And so this is about 14 years earlier. Um, This is during, this is, well, in the first year. Uh, Belshazzar, his father was Napoleon. You don't need to know. But it was basically he was a father who, after about two years, brought his son as a co-regent. And now Belshazzar is in Babylon ruling. His father is actually conquering other places. But the point is, is Daniel is very specific. This is when we got the vision, or I got the vision. By the way, that is very, very important because what liberal theologians try to do is put chapter 7... 200 years later. In fact, they try to say this. It's not even Daniel that's writing. This is 200 years later, which means this. By this point, Babylon had come and gone. Persia had come and gone. Greece had come. And so basically what they're saying is this is not prophetic. It's the liberal way of saying Daniel is not prophetic. And yet Daniel identifies it and says, no, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Babylon is still the power. Now, you might say, but why did Daniel, why did he write this way? Why did he, you know, why didn't he interject it between chapter 4 and 5? Because what, it was, what was chapter 4, what was chapter 1 through 6 doing? It was establishing some things. And the primary is this, that God is sovereign. God is in control. Everything happens the way God wants it to happen as far as the nation's. And so we had to go through chapters 1 through 6 to get to chapter 7 because now we've been laying a good foundation not only of God, but also of Daniel. What have we learned about Daniel? He is an uncompromising man of character, right? He will look death in in his face and say, Lord, your will be done. He is not a liar. He is not a cheat. We can trust even the writer. Because, again, he's been establishing himself. By the way, it's not for self-promotion. What? When, when you're a servant of God, don't you want your message to be credible? Well, you've got to be a man of integrity. You've got to be a woman of integrity, and, and Daniel is. So chapters 1 through 6 sets the foundation that says, okay, what's being said is coming from, from God who is sovereign, from his servant who has, is a man of integrity. So, Prophetically, wide sweep, chronologically, brings us back 14 years. <clears throat> the other thing, third one, is comparatively. This chapter, comparatively. What do you mean? Well, what's the theme? The theme is the, the kingdoms. Now, again, we don't have time, but chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, his dream. Remember the, in fact, if, now if you could. We have some things here. Uh, this was chapter 2. Remember we had the, uh, the gold head that was Nebuchadnezzar, that's Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then Medo-Persia is taken, by the way, each one of these are taken over by the previous. So Babylon is in power when, Daniel and, when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and Daniel interprets. 
Then, then Persia, uh, Medo-Persia, uh, Persian uh, Empire takes over by conquering them. That's, the, that's Belt, Belshazzar, handwriting on the wall, comes under the gate. Later on, 200 years later, Greece conquers Persia, Medo-Persia Empire. And the main character, very important, Alexander the Great. And then after Alexander, by the way, Alexander only lasts 33 years. He could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his own lusts. He basically died a drunk. It says something about leaders. Sometimes they can conquer people, they can't conquer themselves. But anyways, uh, and then his, his, division, his uh, kingdom divided into four parts. Four main generals took over the Grecian empire. And so Alexander conquers Persia, but then he only lasts a few years. His, his uh, empire lasts, but it's under four main kings. And then after that, back into about 146 BC, I believe it is, and we'll, we'll look at that some other time, but uh, then we have the iron legs. The iron legs represent Rome. They come in like a, like a tank, excuse me, like a tank. But notice this. We have iron, but then uh, feet mixed with iron and clay. And, and I, you really have to get this. This already happened in history, but right here is yet to come. And it's called the revived Roman Empire. Very, very important t- term. Because the idea is this. This is all history. But then right here, this is still yet to come. And we find that a, a stone cut without hands from hit and smashes the entire image from up all the way up. And that is Christ. That's the millennial kingdom. So we still have part of the uh, Roman Empire that's still going to be revived. And then Christ is coming back. Now, if you, if you have an outline, you see this laid out. Uh, because what I want to show you is something is the is the comparison, okay? Again, the statue, gold, silver chest, bronze. Oh, could you give me enough? Yeah, you just flip them through if you would. I should have, I forgot. Can you flip them? Help me! Now, what you're going to see here is it's going to go from an image to beast. And the beast is going to be going like this. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Uh, Rome uh, Babylon is going to be a lion with wings. This is a bear with three ribs in its mouth. That's Medo-Persia. Leopard with four wings. That's, that's Greece. And then you have this unrecognizable, just terrifying beast. And, and in fact, I was looking it up, how people portrayed it, and one actually portrayed it as a T-Rex. I thought that's weird, but probably what, excuse <coughs> me, probably what it was actually, it was probably a compilation of all the three. I think it was probably had a part of a lion, part of a bear, part of a leopard, and it was just this amalgamation of this ugly-looking, vicious, destructive, whatever. By the way, each one of these had some interesting characteristics. The lion with wings actually was the symbol of Babylon. That was actually what they used as a symbol. You know, like we have the eagle; they had that. The bear, which was interesting, was just how Persia did it. Persia was just as rambling, just destroyed. Now, leopard with wings, I mean, Alexander, it was just like he was literally not, he was literally, he, he conquered so quickly, it was, it was just, and he was 
done. I mean, it, it, like I said, he died at 33, and he had already conquered the known world. So it was very, very quick. That's why that was. And then just the beast that just destroyed, like the, as it were, the, the, the Roman legions that just ran through anybody, you know, with its jaws. Um, could you give me the next one? So you put them together, Babylon, obviously, and then um, next one. By the way, not the Holy Roman Empire. That shouldn't have been. I just like the picture. Um, I wish I could give you this. I should give you this because this is really good. <clears throat> it even gives you the date, time frames. You know, when, again, 632, but then uh, 550, and then 330, and then uh, Alexander, and then Rome. And like I said, we'll get into that a little bit more. Thank you. So, but let's think about it this way. Let's just step back a second. Nebuchadnezzar, you can get rid of that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar saw an image this really beautiful image. Now, ungodly king sees an image, didn't know the, couldn't even remember the, the dream, let alone the interpretation. Daniel comes along and gives the dream and interpretation. But it was beautiful, glorious, impressive. Now, we know that it went from gold to iron, but it actually went from beauty to strength. I, and I think that's reminiscent of how humanity looks at its kingdoms. See, humanity looks at its kingdoms as brilliant, beautiful, powerful, impressive, glorious, precious, enduring. By the way, isn't gold precious? Even steel, pretty enduring. Now, that's how the ungodly king, this was before he was converted, saw the kingdoms. But this is Daniel. This is godly Daniel being given a, a dream from God. By the way, the first dream came from God. But again, it was given to an ungodly king, and I think it was reminiscent of how humanity looks at its kingdoms. Now, how does, how does God look at humanity's kingdoms? Well, he sees the heart. See, it's devoid of beauty. It's a lion with wings. But what does a lion do? Destroys. You know, a bear. Frightful. I mean, if you meet a bear, you're not going to say, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> it's violent. It's frightful. And then you go to a leopard. And then you go to the unrecognizable beast. And I think what he's getting at is this. God sees humanity's kingdoms as devoid of beauty, violent, frightful, like a wild beast, murderous, and what do you do with a beast? You shoot it. You kill it. You destroy it. And by the way, what do these beasts do? One beast gobbled up the next, gobbled up the next, gobbled up the next, gobbled up the next, and finally Jesus comes back and destroys it all. And I think, I think you've got to remember, again, God is, when it comes to, we get impressed with our own kingdoms. God is not impressed. I think that's one of the things, main lessons I learn out here. God's not impressed. In fact, what God sees is the heart. I mean, you start looking around at the kingdoms of this world right now. I mean, think about this. You know, Syria, slaughter. Most African countries over the last hundred years has had some form of slaughter. You know, you go to Iran, you go to Iraq. You go to America, what do you think of? Well, we kill 55 million babies. I would say we're a nation of slaughter. What does God see? Wild beasts. Oh, we think we're 
invincible. But God sees it a different way. He's not awed. <laughs> He's not wowed. By the way, is that a word? Wowed. And if you wrap the whole thing together, let me give you the big thing. Jesus is coming. That's the whole thing. Now, if you want to structurally break this apart, this chapter, you can put a little line right between verses 14 and 15. Because basically what it does is this. Daniel gets the vision, verses 1 to 14, and then Daniel interprets the vision 15 to the end of the chapter. That's pretty easy. Let me give you a third thing. The details of the vision. This is verses 2 to 8. The details of the vision. Verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision, I. By the way, I is very important. In this chapter, 13 times I is used. Whereas much of chapters 1 through 6 was Daniel recording, and this is what happened to me, but it wasn't I. Now he's saying personal. This is becoming very personal. This is what I've received. And you're going to see it over and over. I saw my vision. I watched. I looked. I saw. I watched. I was watching. All this, you know. In other words, it was coming to me personally. But anyways, I saw my vision by night, so he's sleeping. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring or churning up the great sea. And we're not sure what the great sea was. Was it the Mediterranean? Was it the ocean? Was it just a generic sea? But the sea was churning. It's interesting that wicked humanity is compared to the sea like in Isaiah 57. This is what it says in Isaiah 57 verse 20. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Humanity is compared to the sea and it just, the sea just spits up dirt, you know, and You've ever been through a storm, you know, all the junk that comes up on the beach. In fact, one time, my, my wife and I, years ago, and when we, you know, when we go to New Jersey, we always kind of do some fun things. And so we had the kids, and this was back when, you know, like Cody was about this, you know, so that was a long time ago. Did you notice he's like old, uh, taller than me now? Um, but anyways, this, so this was maybe 15 years ago. And we decided to go down where, the, where one of the uh, streams going into the ocean you know, the inlets, and see if we could find anything on this. On this. Uh, the, the water had gone down. It was low tide. And so we got into uh, walking around on the side. And if you can imagine a bunch of young kids, and like I look now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Because <laughs> I was there too. Literally in mud and mire up to our waist. Literally, that's how... I mean, and there could have been broken glass, and you could have, you know, caught me for being a, a parent that wasn't watching my kids at the time or whatever. But the point was, is we were trying to find, you know, the treasures that the ocean had. But I just remember how much mud and mire was in that inlet. And um, I, I give you all that because really the sea has a lot of filth. That's the point. And so the sea is churning, it's turning. It's polluted. It's the turbulent humanity is what he's referring to. As they, what, try to exploit and govern in their own wisdom and strength. This is what he's getting at. Humanity tries to do it on their own, in their own wisdom, in their own strength. One man said this, it's the, the sea represents the agitated world of the nations. Quote, people, quote, are in constant state of unrest, constant chaos, constant turmoil. 
What did Jesus say in the Isle of the Discord? There will be wars and rumors of wars. It's just going to keep getting worse. It's not getting better. Humanity is not getting better. It's getting worse. So we've got the sea, and then we've got the four winds, which probably represents God's judgment. But it's God's judgment on man's foolishness. In other words, man tries to govern himself, and God says, go ahead and do it, but you can't do it. No, we need a perfect person to govern us. Man cannot govern man. But here's the four winds. And if you think about the four winds, like the compass, the, in other words, that's looking at and saying of all the earth, okay? And I know some of this, by the way, when it comes to some things, when it comes to prophecy, you have to say, like, what is he talking about? But when it talks about the four winds, he's saying the four corners of the earth. And so the four winds of heaven were stirring, so it's God's judgment stirring up the filth of humanity, and he's going to be showing Daniel something. So, quote, this winds stand for the various forces which play upon the nations. W.A. Criswell writes, The sea is shaken to its depths by the four raging winds of heaven. The numeral four in uh, apocryphal uh, literature is the numeral representing the world. The four winds of heaven and the four seasons, the four points of a compass, all represent the whole earth. The raging sea so uh, distressed, convulsed, is a picture of social revolution in the passions of humanity. Daniel sees humanity as a great sea that is shaken from its center to its circumference, from its height to its depth. It is turbulent, tumultuous, sea of human life. So again, it's just this churning that God is allowing, and it's been happening throughout history, moving towards one final climax. How about verse 3? And the four great beasts, now we get into the nations, beasts being kingdoms, came up from the sea. So these beasts come out of the sea. The beasts come out of this filth of the world. Again, these beasts, these kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Now, it says this, came up from the sea, each different from the other. They all had its individual characteristics, each different from the other. If you go to verse uh, 16 of uh, Daniel 7, it says this, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. Okay, so four kings that lead four kingdoms. And let's look at them. Verse 4, the, uh, the first was like a lion. had eagle's wings. We already saw it. Again, Jeremiah 4.7 calls Babylon a lion. Again, a national symbol. But notice what it says. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth. And you say, what do you mean plucked off? Probably this was the, the situation where Nebuchadnezzar went insane. See, where it no longer had its power and strength. And made to stand on two feet, because look at what it says. Like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was humbled, but he was, given a, a, it was, he was given a heart that could understand. He was given a heart that could receive God. We saw that in chapter 4 when we were there. So I think what he's talking about here is, here's 
Nebuchadnezzar, here's the lion, here's the one that could, was invincible, but, but again, he was brought low, plucked off, his, his wings were plucked off, but then he was given a man's heart. Underline the word was given. What is that? God's sovereignty. You're going to see this with each one. By the way, man's heart comes from the word that we get in the Old Testament, heart, which means understanding or thinking. He was able to think. When you come to Jesus Christ, when you understand that God is the true and living God, that's because God gave you a heart to understand. One commentator wrote, this was the only beast that had any vestige of human emotion, conscience, or human moral will. This is the only one that shows anything of like a human. Why? Because you saw with Nebuchadnezzar, he, I believe, was converted. So this lion is Babylon. Number two, which is verse five, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, like a bear, now you say a little brown or a little black bear, they're so cute. Well, yeah, but how about a grizzly? Grizzly is strong and ferocious and fierce. And notice it was raised up on one side. So the way they looked at the bear, it was raised up on one side. One of the shoulders was higher than the other. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. By the way, you know, I could paint the picture in blood and guts you know it doesn't say that but um, but you say okay so well actually that's how the Medo-Persian empire was Uh, the Medes actually started the empire Persia became uh, connected and then actually finally they were dominant and I think when it says one was raised up it it probably is talking about the Persians were uh, were dominating even the Medo-Medes at that time And then it says three ribs, probably three conquered foes, which would be Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. So those probably were, you know, because why do you eat, you know, why would you have ribs in your teeth, something that you destroyed, something that you conquered? And that's exactly what happened to Medo-Persia. One nation was stronger, the Persians were stronger than the Medes, and they actually literally conquered three other nations in, in their quest for power. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And it lasted for about 200 years. How about verse 6? After this I looked and there was another, another beast, like a leopard or a panther, which had its... Oh, by the way, go back real quick. Notice the very end of verse 6 and it says, And they, which are the angels, said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. There again, what do you see? God's sovereignty. Devour my, he's, he's telling them, you, you do, but you're, because I've told. God sends the angels to say, devour much flesh. That's, that's God in control. All right, verse six. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard. He had four wings of a bird. In other words, incredible speed. And that's what you saw with Greece. They just literally just, just conquered. They, they went right through just like um like a horde. Part of the reason was because they were a very small army. I think it was only like 35,000. So they were just as quick and like lightning. They were the originators of the Blitzkrieg. You ever see uh, Germany, uh, Germany when they went over Poland, the Blitzkrieg? I mean, the tanks literally never stopped. They just, just destroyed. That's like, that was like uh, uh, Alexander. It's as uh, quick and as vicious 
as a leopard with wings. And the beast also had four heads, again, because after Neb, uh, Alexander died, he, the kingdom was split by four generals. And, and notice the last part, and dominion was given to it. What do you see? God's sovereignty. Dominion was given to it. He didn't take it. God allowed it. It was part of his plan. Oh, oh, oh. now verse 7, and the, after this I saw in the night vision. And behold, the fourth beast, now, now we start, and he can't even recognize the thing. It's unrecognizable. It's dreadful and terrible. Again, probably a composite of the other three. But it's aggressive. It's exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, again, associated with the iron legs. It was devouring and breaking in pieces, literally crushing and trampling the residue with its feet. Boy, what an apt description of Rome who crushed and shattered the known world as Charles Swindoll said, the Roman legions like iron tanks rumbled across the Mediterranean world and eventually to Europe crushing everything in its path. And by the way, the, the kingdoms were like that. Babylon, you know, stretched to about Egypt all the way to where Babylon is. Medo-Persia went into Iran. You know, that's Persia. And then uh, Greece, they went all the way to India. See, every time this, the kingdom expanded a little bit more, by the time you had got to Rome, it went all the way to Spain and to England, including everything that Greece had. You know, so the, the kingdoms kept going bigger. That's why I think in the end, it's not just the, uh, the European Union. I think when it comes to Antichrist, he literally controls the entire world. So again, now, verse 7, though, there's a change. In the second half, it says this, it was different. See, there's a change here, and I know I'm running out of time. It was devouring, it was trampling, it was destroying, but then it says it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, the ten horns is referring to something yet future, because with Rome, it actually had 60-some generals or whatever. I, I believe that at verse uh, 7, the second part, the ten horns refers to something yet coming. And actually, you'll see that very clearly next week. This is the revived Roman Empire. If you could turn on the thing, and then I, I know I've got to close here. But if you go to the next uh, thing down, the way you've got to look at prophecy, and this happens so often, the prophet will be speaking, but not realizing that the next word he uses is hundreds of years later. It's like that with the the time of Christ. Uh, The first peak is, again, in in this scenario, is the iron legs, is the unrecognizable beast. But But then there's this long time frame, which is basically the church age, that until the end, and now something else is revived. And have you ever been out west? Any of you ever been out west looking at the great mountains? And you look at the mountains, you say, man, those look pretty close, but then they're, you know, 100, you know uh, uh, 100 miles away or whatever. But then you think, well, that peak is probably this, you know, the next peak after. And then as you get closer, you start to realize, oh, wait, the first peak is here, but the next peak is maybe 100 miles later. I mean, it's just huge because you don't realize there's this big gulf, this big valley in between. 
And so that's kind of how you have to think of prophecy. Sometimes something happens, and when it comes to this passage, that's in the past. But then as he's looking, he's saying, well, there's ten horns. That's something yet future. You can shut that off. Thank you. Now, let me just read this, the final thing, and then we'll be done. So he sees this, and now all of a sudden, somebody's talking. In verse 8, it says, I was considering the horns, like I was considering. Now, by the way, horns are not this. We're talking about horns. And there was another horn, a little horn. The little horn. This is Antichrist. This is the first time Antichrist is in Scripture. Coming among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So he destroyed three of the other smaller kingdoms to get his own. And there in this horn were eyes like a man. See, this, this is a man now. This is not just a kingdom. This is a man here. And a mouth speaking pompous words. Talking, talking. He's an orator. You find that in scripture. He's, he, he, uh, but notice pompous. He's arrogant, he's self-exalting, he's haughty. Next verse, this is so interesting, next verse. And I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, who's that? That's God the Father, was seated. Why was he seated? Because he's the judge. So we have this pompous horn (laughs) saying pompous things. Next verse, what? But God the Father is seated. Why? Because he's the judge. Notice who he is. His garment was white as snow. That's absolute purity. His hair of his head was like pure wool. That's eternal wisdom. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. Why? Because he's a purging fire. In fact, Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him like like it were lava from a throne. And notice this, a thousand thousand ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated. <laughs> See, this is, this is the court scene. And there are immeasurable witnesses watching as God is seated, and judgment is about to fall. And look at verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words. So what do you have, this guy... The Antichrist, pop his words, arrogant. I'm going to do my way. God is settled. The witnesses are in place. The trial is about to happen. And I watched the beast that was slain, but get the point of the pompous words. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beast, they had, had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged. See, the other beasts were destroyed, but they were prolonged. Why? Because there was elements in the revived Roman Empire of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, even the revived, right? I mean, all the, they were a compilation. So we have the, the pompous horn, God seated, the pompous horn again in verses 11 and 12, and now the triumphant coming of the Son of Man. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who's that? That is Jesus Christ. By the way, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given. Then to him was given. Remember how we've been looking at given, given, given? To each nation was given for a time, but to him was given. Now notice this. Dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed because every other one was destroyed. Over and over again, we've gone through this process and it just got more vile and more horrific because they were beasts because man cannot serve man. Man cannot rule over man. But finally, God is seated. Oh, the pompous horn is still blowing. Because <laughs> he doesn't know judgment day is coming. By the way, the wicked do not understand judgment day is coming. But we do. But now Jesus Christ, the Son, he's coming. And he's going to judge. By the way, in John chapter 5, it says this. God the Father is seated, but we find out that he's not the one that actually judges. It says this, For the Father judges no one, this is Jesus speaking, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So the judge that is seated with all the millions of witnesses, but then the judgment is passed to the Son, and we find that Jesus is the one that actually opens the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, which starts the Great Tribulation. But God is watching. Oh, that pompous horn is still blowing. But judgment day is upon us. Why? Because God is the one that is accomplishing his purpose, right? As we stand right now, let's stand. I, hope, I don't even know what the song is. But sing it with all your heart. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are serving the king of kings. And you will not have to be judged for your sin. the very best illustration I could possibly give you at the end of this is Revelation 5. Let me just read it. John speaking, I saw in the the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much but because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. But one of the elders said, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, it was in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, talking about its wisdom, his wisdom, power, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's exactly what we just read. God sitting, scroll, Christ comes, opens, he judges. Glory to the Lord, isn't it? Thank the Lord that we know the truth. And do not have to be judged. I trust that you know the truth. But if you've never put your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin, you can turn to him right now. Admit you're a sinner. Admit that his sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice that can forgive and receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for these words of hope. These words of truth, thank you that we know that so much of prophecy has already been fulfilled and yet so much is yet to come. 
We look so forward to the day of your return. And Lord, I pray that we would build our hope and our comfort and our peace on you. Not on this world. Not on what this world is trying to do. We know when it's all said and done, you look at them as filthy beasts. But Lord, someday your kingdom will be set up and we look forward to that. So Lord, now may we just walk in your ways, filled by your spirit, accomplishing your will. In Jesus' name, amen.